Welcome to episode 5 of Judicially Noticed. A little housekeeping, uh, we are starting a YouTube series called Judicial Reality. We actually uh, shot some footage for episode 1, so uh, be on the lookout for that. We'll have an announcement on this podcast and also on social media. Also, shout out to Mikey Hoskins, a.k.a. Boss Hoskin, on uh, Instagram. And uh, thanks, Mikey, for listening to us and dropping a comment. Uh, please check out his Instagram. If you're into street art, roadside attractions, and just art in general from the Los Angeles area, then uh, Boss Hoskin is your source, so uh, follow Boss Hoskin. Alright, I'm also starting a hotline where people can call in and leave uh, voice messages asking for legal advice or general life advice. And uh, we'll play uh, certain messages on this podcast and answer some questions, so also be on the lookout for that. Okay, so for the fifth episode, we'd like to preface by saying none of this is legal advice. It's purely informational and hopefully also entertaining. Uh, we're going to be talking about segments of California law and in this particular episode, how these laws play in the context of traffic accidents. By virtue of listening to this podcast, there's no attorney-client relationship being established, nor are we giving you advice. So take everything with a grain of salt and make sure that you consult an independent attorney if you have an issue that you think might be relevant to what we're discussing. Alright, so this is an episode we've gotten a lot of requests for when I talk to people about this podcast on the street, on social media, etc. It's basically what to do if you or your loved one is in a car accident. It's a huge industry and most people understandably do not trust the guy with the mustache and smiling face saying he's going to fight for you. So let's actually get down to brass tacks and talk about what you need to do if you have something... A little worse than a fender bender. Hell, even a fender bender for that matter. People say you should exchange insurance information, but even before before that, the moment your car comes into contact with another vehicle, the first thing you should do is really actually what you should not do, which is don't yell, I'm sorry, are you okay? What did I do? I'm so sorry I did that. No, do not say anything that might in any way implicate that you're responsible for the accident, including apologizing, because that's something that can be used against you. In fed court, not in state, not in California, those, I'm sorry, are you okay, those are not admissible as evidence. So yeah, so basically, the first thing you should do, first off, you got to separate between strictly property damage accidents versus injury accidents. Property damage is a little simpler because basically no one's injured, so you don't necessarily have to call for the police or an ambulance at the scene. And I mean, nowadays with smartphones, now your insurance has apps. There's like Geico apps, State Farm apps, Mercury apps. You have an app on your phone where you can make a claim immediately just by snapping some pics with your smartphone. The idea is that whether or not you have the apps, that you exchange information, driver license numbers, car information, insurance information, phone numbers, and then try and take a couple pictures of the accident scene as well as of the cars, because the insurance adjuster is going to ask you, what, what was the day like? Was there visibility? Was it raining? Was it nighttime? What time was it? What were the conditions of the road? What color is your car? Where's the damage to your car? What did the front bumper look like? What about the area of impact? And so if you have photos of all these things, you don't have to worry about recalling them from memory. Right, so, I mean, in a sense, your insurance company 
is acting as the police would in that situation, trying to figure out, trying to assess liability and what the damages are going to be. I mean, in California, we have the mandatory $100,000 in liability insurance that everyone has to have, or else you're in violation of criminal statute, which we won't get into. But we will say, even though $100,000 is the minimum required threshold, do bear in mind that if you're found to be at fault and the attorney for the person on the other end of that accident chooses to pursue a lawsuit against you personally, demanding in excess of what your liability insurance covers, you could end up being personally responsible. Uh, which is why even though the $100,000 is the minimum, a lot of people opt to go for 250 or 300 or half a million. I even know someone that has as much as a million dollars, and then they have an umbrella coverage, which then takes care of. Right, I had a case with a Marvel executive who had a $6 million policy on his Mercedes. So, you know, 100000 minimum, you might want to think about more if you have assets that are worth more than that. Right, but I mean, that, that goes again, like, usually in a property damage case, it's not going to exceed $100,000 unless it's some kind of like supercar, like a Ferrari or Maserati, Maybach, Bugatti, etc. But let's say it's not just that you have a Maybach, it's that there was an injury involved. So what do you do first if there is an injury involved? I mean, first off, if (laughs) if you or your loved one is injured and they're at the scene of an accident, you want to call 911 for a and ask for the police and an ambulance. And an injury here is something that's more substantial than a small scratch. Now, obviously, if if you have a headache and you think it could be a concussion or worse, you should definitely reach out and ask for an ambulance and get a police there to make a report. But if you know that literally you have a small scratch because your hand slipped on the steering wheel, uh, you probably don't want to bother the limited resources of 911 and the police. Well, also, you'll get slapped with a really expensive ambulance bill. Like, those yes. are like usually minimum, like, two grand, even if you're going, like, two and a half miles. That's right. Even if you have insurance, you could get, you could be on the hook for the deductible. So, be careful about when you call 911, and you definitely should if it's a serious matter or if there's been injuries that amount to more than just a scratch you might get from a fender bender. Right. So, I mean, in that case, if there's an injury or a death, usually the police are called and they'll create a police report where all the information that you would collect in a property damage case is collected. They get the license plate numbers, the VIN numbers on the vehicles, the relevant insurance information the IDs of everybody involved, and in most cases, the actual owner of the vehicle. Now, the police report is also potentially going to contain information about any statutes that either side may have violated uh, in the process of participating in the accident. For instance, if one side made an illegal left turn and there's enough there's witness testimony or circumstantial evidence or even an admission by one of the drivers that there was uh, a violation of a statute 
or a moving violation, that could really go against you or the responsible person. So uh, make sure that if there's a police report being made and you're within capacity to provide a statement that you take care not to incriminate yourself unless of course there is incontrovertible evidence that you are in fact responsible in which case we would actually recommend speaking with an attorney. Right. The second thing uh, you should be careful of is wearing your seatbelt all the time because I had a case where the other driver was at fault, but my client wasn't wearing a seatbelt and the police wrote in the police report that it was inconclusive as to whether my client was wearing her seatbelt or not because at the time the cops found her uh, unconscious, actually. The cop did not see a seatbelt on her. Right. I mean, the other thing is, like, also if you're injured, I mean, focus on if you, well, if you or your loved ones are injured, focus on, you know, getting proper medical treatment. And remember that you have time because in California, at least, there's two, there's a two-year statute of limitation to file a case. And most mild, most mild injury cases settle before a lawsuit even has to be filed because there's fact-finding that occurs before that and people know your medical coverage. For instance, I had a case where a woman uh, broke her hand. And, I mean, that is a serious injury, but, I mean, that was settled within the first six months after her accident. But I also had HD GoPro camera from this contractor who filmed the accident. Which is why it's always good to have a dash cam. It's 50 bucks on Amazon. I have one in my car. It plugs right into the cigarette lighter and it could come in really handy. You know, in other countries where there's a lot of insurance scams, for instance, in Russia, there's a lot of YouTube videos you can watch where people intentionally crash themselves as pedestrians into into oncoming traffic and into people's cars and then uh, lots of times th these drivers have dash cams that clearly show the car was actually stopped at the time this quote-unquote victim threw themselves at the car in, in hoping to make a fake insurance claim. Uh, additionally, when the fact-finding is taking place to which James was alluding earlier you need to be very careful about the statements that you provide to the insurance, especially to the other size insurance. You may want to have an attorney present if they're recording your statement. You may want to completely decline from doing a recorded statement. You're, in, you're under no obligation to, to provide a recorded statement. You could, you could request that they give you written questions that would give you time to reflect upon and, and make a written answer on with, with sufficient advice from from counsel right and then if you are seriously injured again we highly recommend getting a lawyer now that in and of itself creates some interesting scenarios usually the best way to get a lawyer is by personal reference if you have friends or family that have used an attorney in the past and have you know gotten a successful outcome that's really the best way the internet is also a great tool and resource. You, of course, have to be careful about Google because usually those are paid advertisements. Unless, unless it's the guy with the mustache and the smiling face who says he'll fight for you. For example, though, he, he did good work for a friend of mine. And, and also... Wait, there's actually a guy with, with a mustache and a smiling face? 
Yeah, you haven't seen those commercials? No, I thought, back, I thought I thought it they're, we were just making like a generic. There are there are several actually, but they're you they all have, see them on the back of buses with like weird phone numbers or like call eight million. And they all have mustaches. Yeah, most of them do. I don't. There. Yeah, there's a few that don't, but most of them. You look at the picture of the firm, and uh, most of there's always like one guy with like a mustache, or a tall dude with a mustache. Somewhere inside. Now, is it a handlebar mustache? Is it more of a goatee and a mustache combo? Uh, I mean, because because I mean, it's diverse, and I mean, a lot of these firms like specifically have these photos that show that they're a diverse group. So they take like twenty or so people. They get their paralegals. They get everybody. So you got everybody from every color of the rainbow in this one photo advertising this law firm. But I mean. Yelp is a great resource if you're talking about finding an attorney on the internet because you can look up their Yelp page and you can see whether or not you know this attorney is legitimate based on right. what their the actual ladies. clients have said. And it's not like they get to choose who's on and off their Yelp page. Right. And Google reviews also. Right. Uh, but again, they get to choose to whom they ask that a review be written about them. And sometimes... I've heard this about Yelp, and these are allegations. I, I have no idea one way or another, as the, we're not being paid here to advertise Yelp, but I've heard you could actually pay your way to, to, to get better ratings on Yelp. And these are allegations. Uh, I don't know whether they're true one way or another, but in any case, on any website that has reviews, you should also do your own research and ask around and make sure that every review is genuine and not a paid advertisement or a kickback. And if you can't get a face-to-face -face interview with the attorney and their staff... Most of whom provide 30-minute free consultations, and if they don't, that's a red flag right there. Correct. But I mean, and things you can do as a client, you know... You can always check in. I, I would make sure if your attorney's not doing this themselves, I would check in at least bi-monthly with your attorney and find out what the status on your case is. Sometimes they just don't have anything to report, so they don't call you. Also, I would secure your own copy of the police report and uh, keep a file of all your medical costs and medical reports just for your own safekeeping. And then uh, find out if you or your loved one will require future medical care and see if you can get an estimate on that. It's important to, in certain cases, document your earnings. For example, for the prior six months leading up to the accident. And that's something you can provide to insurance for them to assess your lost earnings. Uh, based on what you were making in the couple weeks prior and couple months prior to the accident. It's right. important to... We should also probably do an episode about lost wages because that can become a really tricky area of the law. Right. And you may have to hire forensic accountants and it, it can actually get more expensive than it's actually worth. Especially because not everyone gets a regular old paycheck. Some people are self-employed and... Sometimes it costs more to deal with getting an accountant, accountant than it does to try and wrap things up amicably with insurance. So. And then, of course, if you need to report your lawyer, there's always the state bar website has a real simple form you can uh, fill out if you feel that your client is significantly neglecting you. 
Or if they've stolen money from you. If you feel your lawyer is significantly. Yeah, significantly neglecting your needs. It's got to be pretty significant, though. And then, of course, if they're stealing money from you or they're not giving you proper invoices, you can make an inquiry with the state bar. There's also always going your own route without a lawyer. I had a client do this. We don't recommend it, but go on, James. We do not recommend it, but I had a client that was quite successful. He was in a wheelchair, and uh, he got into a car accident at UCLA, and he decided to uh, fight his own case in Santa Monica Superior Court, and he, he won. Always try and get insurance, if especially if you're on the right side and the other party to the accident is is admitted to be at fault oftentimes their insurance will say okay we admit fault try and, and actually get a settlement with insurance uh especially if there's enough money in that policy to uh, make you whole for your injuries or property damage because if you try and personally sue that person we talked about this earlier about why it's important to have a big policy but for all intents and purposes generally it's very challenging to individually sue someone because first of all they might be judgment proof second of all if they're not judgment proof and actually have enough assets it'll be very difficult to enforce a judgment against them okay I got a million dollar judgment against Mr. X how am I going to actually use that judgment to obtain the money that I'm owed Uh, you might have to do a bank levy you might have to put a lien on their home and it becomes very complicated if that person has assets under other folks names or if they've transferred it into protected entities like LLCs and corporations and a a whole slew of other things that people do to get out of liability or get out of having to pay up on a judgment which really stinks but it happens a lot right also I mean if you decide to pursue your case on your own when you actually file the lawsuit, then you have to pay your filing fees. You'll probably have to secure an expert, and experts are very expensive to to get. You could pay like easily fifteen thousand dollars in experts. And then there's jury fees, and then there's court reporter fees. There is if discovery has to be done, especially if you hire an attorney to do the discovery for you, which is gathering information from the other side and from their insurance, it can become very costly. Right, and then there are certain deadlines that you have to make, and they're very hard to keep track of, and they can get complicated when things get moved. So it can be more costly than to just find a good lawyer. And settling is not a bad thing. You know, you hear especially people with deep pockets saying, I never settle, I never settle. Because if I settle, then other people are going to sue me and think that they can get money out of me. And in the context of wealthy people being sued, uh, Michael Jackson was a good example. Maybe there's some merit to that because once they realize, oh, Michael Jackson will settle with you even if it's obvious that he did nothing wrong, then other people will want to sue Michael Jackson just to get free money out of him, which is a really scummy thing to do. Uh, but people did that and continue to do so. But but when you're settling with insurance in a traffic accident, that's not really the same thing. You're settling because you've been able to prove up your damages and there's already an, a policy in place that legally uh, obligates the insurance carrier to make that payment to you. And if they don't, uh, there's laws in place where you can obtain punitive damages from them and sue them for bad business practice and bad faith 
lowballing and whatnot, and most insurance companies themselves don't want it to get that far. And so it's very possible that with a good attorney who knows what he's doing, you can actually get a very favorable settlement. Uh, and by the way, if you end up litigating, you could get stuck in the legal system for years versus six months to a year of settling out. So yeah, that's basically our auto accidents in a nutshell. So moving on to some uh, current events. Bar results were just released this past Friday for the uh, February 2018 bar exam. So I guess now it's a two-day exam where day one is five essays and then a performance test. And what a performance test is, basically the test makers give you a fake client in a made-up jurisdiction and you have to write a demand letter for them or you have to write a legal memoranda for them. I think now usually it's you write an objective memo. So that's basically you write a memo about the strengths and weaknesses in your uh, client or potential client's case. So what a performance test basically boils down to is it's a writing assignment to see if you can read and interpret legal rules and cases and come up with a uh, cohesive essay that answers your client's problem like a real lawyer actually does. The thing is in real life you get way more than an hour and a half to figure out your client's problem and give them an answer. Which is why it becomes a little bit of a rat race just to get in as many issues, spot as many as you can. Right, it becomes more of a uh, test of how fast you can type out all the rules. Probably a good idea to learn to type if, if you're planning to take the bar in the traditional way, which fewer and fewer people are doing nowadays, actually writing things out. I think I saw when I was taking the bar maybe three or four people doing that, like in my visible eyesight range. The guy, the last time I took the bar, the guy next to me was a lawyer from New York and he hand wrote his entire bar exam. And that back then was the three-day bar exam where you had three essays in the morning and then a performance test in the afternoon the net the day two you had 200 question 200 multiple choice questions and then day three was just a repeated day one where you had to write three long essays and do another performance test so that's a lot of writing that's that's at least 40 to 50 pages of writing so nowadays with california's two-day bar which this was the, the first one, the February 2018 was the first time that it was no. two days? Or the I one prior to that, the July 2017 was also I think July days. 2017 was the first two-day bar. Okay, so this was, this this last bar, the February 2018 bar, the results for which just came out, was the second bar exam in California where it was only two days. And you mentioned the first day was five essays and a performance test. And what about day two? Day two is just like day two of the three-day bar. It's the 200 multiple-choice questions put on by the uh, National Conference of Bar Examiners, which create the test known as the uh, multi-state bar exam. And that's basically a 200-question multiple-choice test on torts, criminal law and procedure, property, contracts, federal civil procedure and federal evidence. Now, last thing was the passage rate, which was quite abysmal. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I guess this last bar exam, we don't have all the data yet, but it was a 27 point something pass rate, which is an 8% decrease 
from last year's February bar exam. Now, the February bar generally tends to have lower numbers. Is that right? Lower passage rates than the... Than the, the July, July because there's also less people taking it. There's more right. repeat, repeat takers. takers. But even for a bar that generally has lower passage rates because of the seasonality of it being in February as opposed to July, it's still quite surprising that it was only 27%, especially after, in my opinion, it was made a lot easier now that it's two days instead of three. So once the full results come in, it'll be interesting to see why there's been such a drastic change, and perhaps somehow it's more difficult even though it's two days now. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I, I really don't know until we get all the numbers. I mean, what determines whether or not most people pass... Well, I mean, here's the thing. Here's how the MBE works. Basically, it's 200 multiple choice questions. But out of those 200 questions, there's probably six or seven you know you got right. And then there's probably three or four you know you got wrong just because maybe they did that by design. The right answer just didn't seem to appear in any of those choices. And so you just had to take a blind guess there. Like you read a property question, but you know, all the answers were in contract law. Sometimes that happens. So, and then the rest, you're just blind. Well, you're just, you've pretty much narrowed down the answer to like 50-50. And if you come out on a 50-50, if you come out the wrong way on a 50-50 guess, you fail. If you're right more than you're wrong those times that you've narrowed it down 50-50, you pass. That's essentially how the MBE works. And the MBE, it greatly, yeah, it's it's about, what is it, like 45 to 50% of your grade on the bar. I think now it's got to be 50%. But the question is whether anything's been changed to make it more difficult. The fact that it's two days now instead of three. Right, and I don't think the NCBE will ever release whether or not they changed the format or if they changed the questions in any way. As far as the 200 question multiple choice portion is concerned. Right. Uh, but the five essays and the performance test, perhaps. Perhaps, but I mean that's also that's also very that's also very subjective. That's right, it, incredibly because, and that's that's always a problem that has existed with any form of graded material that's or standardized written. test. Right, when you write something, oftentimes. Yes, there's an objective degree to which you can spot issues and argue and analyze them, but with as is the case with any written material, as James said, it's very subjective because, let's say with math problems, there's one right answer. Two times two is always four. Four divided by two is always 7,000. But when you're writing an essay, if the person reading your essay doesn't like the way you've written it or doesn't understand some of the stuff you've discussed, even if you got all the issues, you might not score the same way as someone who spotted the same amount of issues that you did but wrote in a different style. Right. Also, bar exam essay writing and essay writing for law school are vastly different. Law school, there's always, they make it purpose, law professors make it purposely ambiguous because they want to see if you can argue both sides of an issue. But on the bar, you might really need to stick to one side. Even right. Even if the, the, you do the, want to talk about the other side a little bit. Right. With the bar, it's more, you're supposed to spot certain issues that were purposely written into the fact pattern, and you're supposed to analyze it in a certain way. And there's usually two outcomes that can occur based on your analysis of the facts. 
so the bar is looking for more can you hit these issues and explain them whereas law schools are like okay can you spot the issue give me the rule and explain the two outcomes and keep your essay going until so it's like a it looks like a series of forks if you were to graph it whereas the bar is very linear like this issue leads into this issue this issue leads into this issue and then here's my conclusion at the end that's right whereas law school it's like well here's the issue here's the rule here's both sides of the argument here's how i conclude like it's probably this and then you got to go down and do the same thing for the next thing that's right so yeah law school and the bar are vastly different which is weird because like the metrics still for like firm law firms and stuff predicting whether or not you'd be a good fit and pass the bar the first time they look at your law school grades which are pretty arbitrary but that that's a topic for another time basically my thoughts on the bar exam are that right now with the internet and and all sorts of law firms moving from like different jurisdictions because there's markets that are constantly moving in different states like Alaska is a really litigious place uh, Washington DC there's a lot of political action going on there to have a state like California where you take the bar exam and then you're only licensed to practice law in that state or even crazier you take the District of Columbia bar exam and you're only you know, you're only allowed to practice long. What is it, that like 8 to 20 mile radius? But there's agreements that they have, right? With There's reciprocity, but I mean... Reciprocity agreements, correct. A lot of states don't have them, so I mean... D.C. does not have it? Well, D.C. is not a D.C. State, does have it. You can wave into D.C. and D.C. has reciprocity to other states. Okay, okay. So that, that does expand your 20 mile radius a little bit. Right, but I mean, you still got to wave in and do like extra essays or state-specific exams to get into those jurisdictions oh, sometimes. I see. Oh, I see. Uh, I'm not an expert on the rules on that, nor do I claim to be. But I'm saying I think more states should adopt the uh, uniform bar exam, but even that has some issues so that you can be more of a mobile lawyer so that you're not just stuck in like practicing law in a state like Colorado or California where there's no reciprocity. Can you talk more about the uniform bar exam and which states participate in it as it stands? There's several states that participate. I know New York just adopted the uniform bar exam. I think New Jersey did. So it's a bar exam that is uniform in every sense. The questions that you'll that will appear will right. discuss issues that another state will also discuss. You get the same, everyone taking the bar exam in those uniform bar exam states get the same exact exam. And I, and those are the same topics that I just mentioned for the uh, multi-state bar exam. Because the people who write the multi-state bar exam, they also write the multi-state essay exam and the multi-state performance test. So those people, those bars are usually two days, just like California is now. They get five essays and a performance test. And then they get the 200 multiple choice questions, and it's 50-50. 50% of your grade is the written, and 50% of your grade is determined by the multiple choice. And then each state that participates in the uniform bar exam has a different score required to be a passing candidate. So you got several states. I think Alaska, New York, New Jersey... Several other states are uniform bar exams. So you sit, you get, you're all taking the same essay questions, you get the same performance tests, you get the same 200 multiple choice, and then based on your score, uh, determines which jurisdictions you can apply and get sworn in as an attorney. So there you have it, folks, the bar exam. Yeah, that's the bar exam in a nutshell. All right. 
I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Yeah, so uh, we're available still on all podcast streaming services. Please drop us a like, a comment, and a review. You could be like Boss Hoskin and get a shout-out on this show. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, and folks. We out.